Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's one of my favourite times of the year, opening weekend of the Six Nations. Come on in and feel the excitement on the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast. I didn't go to rugby school, Murph. No, neither did I. So uh, maybe like like me then, uh, interprovincial rugby didn't have the same cachet in the late 80s, early 90s as it does now. I think that's fair to say. And your main, in fact, possibly only rugby consumption... I mean, the f- Five Nations was rugby to yeah. yourself and myself. That, That's what it, the sport was. That was the sport. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the All Blacks would come, whatever, once every seven or eight years, and you'd definitely watch that. Mm-hmm. And the Rugby World Cup kind of was interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if you watched if you watched ten games a year of rugby, that would be pretty good going, and they would all have been in the Five Nations. I've actually I've erased my live rugby experiences from my memory. Uh, my early early experiences probably when I was from the age of about seven or eight up to about mm. t- twelve or thirteen. I was, yeah, I'm going to say dragged along. I was I was brought <laughs> along, maybe maybe dragged along as far as to uh, quite a few Monkstown games. Yeah, uh, my uncle, uh, one of my uncles, or possibly possibly a couple of my uncles, having had an affiliation with the club. Okay, um, yeah, I watched a lot of Monkstown. They always seem to be playing Sea Point. That was going to be a local derby <laughs> against Seapoint. Were they in like a two-team division? <laughs> yeah, just Monkstown versus Seapoint. And the score always seemed to be 6-3. Yeah. Always 6-3. And I used to watch these Six Nations. I used to see France and the Six Nations and see all this. I said, why? What am I? Where's all the... If only if only the sport that I watched was the same as the sport yeah. that I see uh, uh, on television. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you want to hear the first ever rugby game I was at? Oh, yeah, go on. Brian Driscoll's debut. Ireland against Argentina. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Not myself, a bad time to jump on board. Myself and uh, my brother were in Dublin for um, for a reason. Uh, I'm trying to think, a music gig or something? Or Soft Oscars, Saturday, yeah. Saturday afternoon, and we were we heard that there was an Irish rugby international on that day. We're like, I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll give this rugby a go. And there it was, Brian Driscoll's first, uh, Brian Driscoll's debut. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I got in on the ground floor of uh, professional rugby in this country, I suppose you could say. But, yeah, I mean, for for the vast majority of people in the country, and it's obviously changing now, and I'd say my my cousins, sons and daughters all play rugby. And they all play, you I mean, even in the, in the space of 20 years, 
the monoculture, the little tiny little monocultures that existed in Irish sport don't quite exist in the same way anymore. But uh, for people of our vintage, the Five Nations or the Six Nations, yes, on that was rugby. The team is in, hot off the press as we record. It might be a little bit cooler. Uh, by the time you... It might cool in a small bit by the time you listen to this. But hey, listen, as we speak, we've just gotten the teams in. Uh, the first 15 plus subs, Murph. From, Go on from then. Out. It's uh, Rob Kearney, Tommy Bowe, Jared Payne, Robbie Henshaw, Simon Zebo, Ian Keatley plays out half, uh, Connor Murray. And then the forwards, Jack McGrath, Rory Best, Mike Ross, Devon Toner, Paul O'Connell, Peter O'Mahony, Sean O'Brien starts... And Jordy Murphy uh, wears number eight. Uh, it's weird looking at an Irish team that doesn't have number eight, Jamie Heathcliff. Yeah. Uh, on it I mean, you're, you're calling him a wuss, right, Murphy, for missing this game? What the hell is he doing, you know? What he needs to do is spend more time in that oxygen tent that he has. <laughs> uh, he's just not committed to recovering from this injury. I'm amazed. I'm absolutely, I'm astonished, right? It's, I know it's been teed up and he played some a bit of time in the, played about 60 minutes out of the Wolfhounds game. And for maybe about two weeks or so ago, the, the spectre of Sean O'Brien returning for the Six Nations mm. was hovering over it. But when you look at it, the guy's barely played any rugby and he's had two serious injuries, uh, r- related injuries, mm. in the last uh, year or so. Uh, I, I, I actually, I, it's amazing that he's being pitched back into the Six Nations game. I'm not saying it's uh, reckless, so I just, I'm surprised that he yeah. is deemed to be at the required physical level to go and play these matches. And they're playing against Italy. Uh, uh, to use one of the many cliches, Murph, the Italians, particularly in their first game, mm. are extremely physical. So They will uh, front up. They will certainly front up. So I, 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 fair play to him, and hopefully he comes through it okay, because yeah. if he doesn't, yeah, well, I don't think about that. Yeah, I don't think there's many uh, Irish rugby players uh, that they would do this for, but Sean O'Brien is one of those one of those guys, with an eye on the France game the following week, probably. We'll have Shane Horgan and Eddie yeah, Sullivan. Course, That's sorry. the guy. We'll have the two of them <laughs> on very shortly. We attempted to preview the Super Bowl with US Murph last week, but mm. ended up mostly talking about the Super Bowl party he was invited to. Murph, friends, parents, not even so much friends of his. That was the, the key sticking point. He was not going to a friend's house. Parents of a friend of his kid, Declan, yeah. Doug and Lisa, were the hosts of this mm. party. Um, he sounded pretty pumped about it. <laughs> <clears throat> but we will. I, I'm anxious to hear how... How it all go? How it all went down? And a big sporting event wouldn't be a big sporting event without a massive celeb gate crashing the celebrations. Daniel Craig of the Lions tour, Murph, of course. Uh, Fergie and Sean Connery. That's Alex Ferguson <laughs> and Sean Connery. Rather than Princess Fergie yeah. and Sean Connery. Andy Murray's U.S. Open was it? I think it could have been a semi-final win at that. Yeah. And on Sunday, it was that it was the New England Patriots. So who could it be other than that great Bostonian Mark Wahlberg who couldn't hide his love for Tom Brady? Best ever. And it's kind of hard to picture this, but he's on the pitch literally three minutes after they've won the Super Bowl. Tom Brady looking kind of awkward, being told he's the best ever, yeah. and saying, "I love you." F that man, you're the best ever. Extremely awkward. I don't want to say I don't want to cast aspersions on Marky Mark here, Murph. Okay. I don't want to yeah, say that you've been a big fan, dating all the way back. all the way back to the Marky Mark years, and I don't want to say that he was definitely a little tipsy there. Yeah. But if his performance on the Graham Norton show last year is anything to go by, did you see that episode? This, this, this vine, the vine that you just heard, there were definite echoes of his performance on Graham Norton. Uh, he was on with he was on with Sarah Silverman and Michael Fassbender, right? And well, he was just leering at uh, at Sarah Silverman mm. for the most time, who handled him 
brilliantly yeah. and with utter contempt. The, 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 he treat, she treated him with the contempt that his behaviour deserved. <laughs> uh, Michael Fassbender <laughs> was trying to tell some stories. You know, and it's I loved Graham Norton, but the stories are so teed up. It's Graham Norton pop, yeah. pops out this. Uh, he says, "You did such and such. Uh, you acted with such and such." And then there's the cue to yeah. can tell this story and it always and obviously Graham Norton's so good that it always comes across uh, comes across quite naturally but Michael Fassbender was telling some story whatever it was this is Fassbender's entertaining bit and every time he, he just started getting to a big part of the story Mark Wahlberg would just say yeah 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 I know what's coming next he, he would literally be giving the ending of or the next part of the story it and was a lot less funny than it sounds there yeah. Because it was actually really. Oh, no, it, was just a, it was just a drunk guy being obnoxious oh, to a, a really clean cut, <laughs> really? sober guy in Michael Fassbender, who really you could annoyed. see was getting really annoyed, but yeah. was trying to not lose his marbles totally. Yeah, on yeah, yeah. TV. it was not. It was yeah. not cool. The Six Nations, anyway. Enough of Mark Wahlberg. The Six Nations starts under lights in Cardiff tomorrow night. Wales against England. The Ireland team sheet is in for the game in Rome on Saturday, so it's time to get very excited. Simon's joined us. Uh, looking How's pretty, going? Looking pretty pumped there. Simon. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, delighted to be joined by two men who gave us some of our greatest days in the tournament, Eddie O'Sullivan and Shane Horgan. Lads, great to talk to you. Uh, it's, it's always a good time. Shane, I get the sense, uh, I've talked to you for quite a long time about uh, various rugby tournaments and games. I get the sense the Six Nations is the one that really floats your boat the most. Yeah, it does. I, I love it. I, um, I think there's something special about it. I know we get a lot of rugby nowadays with um, the Pro 12, with the rugby championship, and, and there's a huge amount of exposure of, of Southern Hemisphere rugby as well. But I think there is still something special about the Six Nations. It's something that makes players and fans and, and coaches uh, and people in the media all alike um, in, in their excitement. And it's something that we haven't had a huge amount of success in, even though we get to play it every year. So um, and things have changed recently that we really feel as if we have a team now that can compete, you know, week in, uh, week out throughout the tournament and and perhaps win it. So, yeah, I, I really like watching it. I always think it's, a, it's good quality and most of all, it's entertaining. It's entertaining and it's absolutely nerve-wracking. I mean, Eddie, you, you've got mostly good memories and a few bad. Uh, the When you're watching this as a supporter... I shouldn't say supporter because watching this from a, a journalistic standpoint, it, it's impossible not to get a, like, so consumed by it. Every match is so important. And if you lose one, you're almost gone. If you lose two, you, 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 you totally are. When you're actually in the middle of all that, uh, is, it, is it difficult just to keep your, keep your head uh, amongst, other issues, amongst other things? Well, uh, it's a lot easier now that I'm watching from the sidelines. Yeah. I can tell you that. <laughs> but um, it still consumes you as a, as a tournament. Shane is right. Like, it, it's a very special tournament. It's the best international tournament, bar none. I mean, the World Cup is great, but you only once every four years. This is every year, you're in, you're out. And every year is a different possibilities. You have, you know, for Ireland this year now, is, you know, let's not get too carried away. It's unfair to the team, but it's your, it's your Grand Slam possibility because you've your France and England at home. And that's been the case for, for as long as I can remember. And if you're going to win a Grand Slam, this is the year. It's the, it's the odd year because you've the two big guns in, in, in Dublin. And then you feel... If we can get those done, we can we can probably get the rest of it done away from home. Whereas that that is different next year. Then you've also got the the fact that the tournament itself now has gotten so tight. There's no easy games. Like last year, we won on points difference. The victory last year was based on the victory against Italy at Arida. You know, scoring 20 points in the last few minutes of the game put us in a position where getting across the line in Paris was enough for a championship. And it, it's just enthralling, you know. And and it's 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 for me, it's unbelievable excitement, and it's so compressed. 
I mean, it's it's definitely fantastic. Yeah, team selection is interesting as well. Ian Keatley starts ahead of Ian Madigan. Sean O'Brien is straight back into the starting lineup, and Jordy Murphy playing at number eight. Let's just hear Joe Schmidt explaining his reasoning for picking Keatley at number ten over the last uh, hour or so. Um, part of it is his combination with Conor Murray. I think they play week to week, and they play well together, and that that understanding is very good. It's not to say that I don't think Ian couldn't play well with Connor. It's it's also that uh, Ian Keatley has had that rhythm of playing at 10 on a regular basis where Ian, um, Ian Madigan obviously hasn't. He's played a lot of 12. And coming off the bench, that flexibility of him sliding straight into 12 or straight into 10, that, that flexibility is a nice thing to have as well. Um, so, you know, again, it was a reasonably tight decision and uh, it's probably a vote of confidence in Ian Keatley in that he, he has controlled games well. He's finished games off well for Munster in clutch moments and, and I think that's, that's given us a degree of confidence that he can do the same thing for us. Eddie, it's interesting to hear, first of all, an international coach admit that club or provincial combinations matter at international level, but also this might be deemed as, as maybe the more conservative selection over Madigan, but in terms of place kicking, not necessarily so? Um, I'm torn on it. I wouldn't go along with everything Joe said in, on the basis that I don't think Ian Madigan has played um, badly at all, and he has played very well for Leinster at 10, and we know he's a clutch kicker as well, you know, and he probably has an edge on, on Ian Keatley with all due respect to, to Ian when it comes to, to place kicking position. Um, I don't particularly buy into the, 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 the provincial blending, you know, that 9 and 10 playing together. Now, having said that, people say, well, you played Stringer and Algar enough together, but let's be honest, there wasn't much arguing about it at the time. Um, certainly, I'm surprised. And what, what jumps out at me is that I have a feeling he's going to try and play the same game as last year. Now, it'll be more difficult, and that's another discussion. But if he's going to play the same game as last year, which is basically run Italy off their feet, and the reason I say that is he's put Jordi Murphy straight into the back row, and he's got a very mobile, um, he got a very mobile uh, pack there. Um, then the guy to do that for me would be Madigan. So, in in my head, and I'm only coming off this like in the last hour, there's a contradiction there. If he's going to play conservatively, um, maybe he needs more beef in the back row. If he's going to move the ball, maybe Madigan. So I'm not sure what's going through his head. I'm trying to you know pick through mm. his logic, and I, I I can't see it particularly at the moment. Shane, can you? Um, I think one word was really instructive there that he used, uh, which was control that Madigan um, fails to, to give the team a, a, as much as, as, as Keatley does. So I think um, that's going to be, that was a big issue for Joe. I think it was also you know, the, the combination between 9 and 10 being a multiple combination. I agree with Eddie. I, I don't think it's a massive thing. I think that's probably just a useful construct um, for Joe to use to take, you know, to deflect a, a number of the questions. Um, but what's, what's interesting as well, the idea of having a running 10 at, um, at 10, and having Madigan say, as, you know, is, is your stereotypical running 10, somebody who wants the ball, makes a lot of breaks, that doesn't necessarily negate the game plan that Joe mentioned there, because in some ways, having a running 10 doesn't necessarily make you a running team. You can be a much more effective running team and move a, move the opposition around the pitch more if you have someone who can distribute the ball better or con- control the game and put you in the right areas. Sometimes by having a 10 that takes the ball up a lot or takes the ball into contact or runs it a lot, you're not necessarily 
you know, really re- having a team chase it. You're just having a breakdown around the 10-12 channel. Is Madigan going to feel pretty stung by this? He's in the match day squad, so he'll need to get over it quickly enough, Shane. But he closed out a couple of big games for us last season, and when the chance comes now, he doesn't, uh, with sex and injured, he doesn't get to step up and start. Yeah, I think, though, he probably will be disappointed in his performance um, at the, uh, last week for the Wolfhounds. And I don't know if he was in the box seat or not. I don't know if he played himself out of that, uh, out of the team this week, or if he had to if he had to play himself in. Either way, um, I think he would have been disappointed with his performance. Kicking out of hand wasn't great. Missed a few kicks. Thought he was very negative in his, his, in his running lines when he was uh, distributing the ball, which is something that Joe was very hot on. So... Yeah, he'll be disappointed he's not playing. He'll have to get over pretty quick. And he's done that you know, very successfully with Leinster over the last couple of years because you know, he was number two to Sexton. That's just the way it was. Um, and he had a fight for the jersey with um, Goffert. And, and he hasn't always come out on top of that. And he's, he's still contributed to Leinster and Ireland over that time period uh, very positively. Um, and very often he's contributed more positively when he's come off the bench than when he's been on. Eddie, just the, I suppose the other big selection is Jordy Murphy getting in at eight. Um, hasn't played there much at all in recent times, has in the past for Leinster. Um, to go from not necessarily first choice for Leinster in the back row um, to suddenly number eight at international level is a massive leap, yeah? I, I have a feeling, looking at that back row, that the numbers on their back will bear no resemblance on, on the positions they'll take at the scrum. I have, a, I have a strong suspicion that Charlie Murphy is there because, again, I think they're going to throw the ball around if they can, if they can get a bit of momentum. Um, and being, they know if they speed up the game, Italy will struggle with that. That's always been the case. If you can control the game but speed it up. So I think what's going to happen is that you'll probably see O'Mahony packing down at eight on our ball on their ball, it doesn't really matter. Whatever, it depends on the space on the short side and stuff. But I suspect that you know, Manny will probably play eight when it comes to the scrum. It doesn't matter after that because once the ball is live, the number in your back is relevant. At the line out, it doesn't matter where you are. You can be standing anywhere and jump or lift, you know. So I just think that's pretty irrelevant. I, I just still think when it comes to to our our ball, I don't, I don't, I doubt Jordy roughly will be at number eight on our ball. Uh, that's the only difference I think. But Eddie, it won't matter which. It's probably something one even uh, notice on, on on Saturday. You know. I, I thought maybe they might use Sean O'Brien at eight uh, and not O'Mahony. Uh, having you know, the best of both worlds, what you get there is you have um, Sean uh, running the, the defensive lines that he'll need to to run against France and being first over the ball as he will be need need to be in France if he's selected then. But also you have the opportunity to you know pack him down at eight on. Um, on Ireland ball um, and really get him driving into that 10 channel Shane is this not asking a huge amount of Sean O'Brien to go straight back into the starting team based it seems largely on how he came through the Wolfhounds game Joe Schmidt was asked about that and he said well he was asked was he penciled in before the Wolfhounds game and Schmidt said no not not really he came through well and we think he's okay to go now and this guy's played very little rugby between the initial injury and then the relapse slash second injury he's played very little uh, games over the last year or so and he's gone straight into a Six Nations encounter with one of the most physical teams in the world. Yeah, it is a big ask but it also is very instructive as to 
how important the Six Nations is for everyone who plays it and uh, and for everyone who coaches in it. It's really important. I remember uh, Eddie O'Sullivan saying to me a couple of uh, years ago, he said um, um, that if you lose if you if you lose uh, two games in the Six Nations, you know you could lose your job. You lose three, the chances are that you will. So Eddie, I'm sure, will remember that. Um, now I'm not saying that that's the situation that Joe is in this year at all, but it is a hugely important uh, tournament. It's not one that's built up over year over um, you know over the course of the the tournament. You need to win you know game after game after game to stay in it. Um, and from that point of view. Um, Sean O'Brien wanted to play, and I think Joe Schmidt wants him to play. Um, so therefore, it was. I'm not. I don't think Joe was wasn't telling the truth when he said that he wasn't penciled in uh, for the game prior to the Wolfhounds. But I'm sure he was thinking if he got through the Wolfhounds, which he did. He got 50 minutes out of the Wolfhounds. I'm sure he was always thinking to play him uh, in this game against France because if the, uh, sorry against Italy because if they don't play him in this game against France where they didn't play him, then there was no real hope from throwing him in against the French the week after. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point at the end you made there. That's exactly what this is all about. He came through the Wolfhounds on skate, good 50 minutes. If he had any chance of playing against France, he had to play in Italy. And there was no point in bringing him off the bench in Italy for the last 30 minutes. He needs to start again and see how far down the track he gets. But he gets another. He gets an hour out of him uh, in Italy now, or even 65 minutes out of Sean, he'd be ready to roll for France. And that was always the goal, I think, to get him back for France because that's the one, he's the one guy who can really do serious damage to France. And I think that was always the plan all along. So you're right about that. Absolutely, 100% agree with that. And Eddie, what do you think? I think that if it hadn't been Italy, I don't think that he could have taken the risk with, with no, Sean. I, agree. I think was any other team, I think it would have been yeah. a bit too much. No, I would I, I think we can, we, like, Again, people have to be realistic here. And it's like Sean O'Brien is coming back from a huge layoff. And the guy is one of the best players in the world in his position. But he's human. And even last week, I thought he had a fantastic 15 minutes. But you can't expect him to beat the world next Saturday. I think if he's a good, solid game, a good, steady game, steers away from any knocks and bruises so he can train the following week, he's right on track. But we should expect, not expect too much from him. But I think Joe's measured in that. Yeah, he knows he, he doesn't need a barnstormer from Sean to beat Italy, uh, but he need him a barnstormer against France probably, uh, you know, two weeks, end of the week later. So I think that's all part of the, the, the matrix here. Shane, the other one is Jared Payne, who it's probably not a form selection again with Luke Fitzgerald, Earls, Cave, arguably in better form in that position the last few weeks. Um, so you couldn't say there's a theme to the selection overall from Joe. But it was interesting, you guys probably didn't see the press conference, but uh, Joe was asked about Payne, and he was by no means assuring him of his place the next day. You know, it was, uh, we felt these guys went well in the one game they played together, but all these other fellas have played well. It was an interesting way to go about a press conference, talk about a guy who's trying to get his way into a team, and it's a, it's a brand new combination, essentially. Yeah, but you've been to enough of Joe's press conferences that he always does that. And players... Keeps them on their toes. Yeah, do it. Well, it just... I, I don't know what it does to players, but players certainly recognise that that they're not going to be surprised the following week if, they're, if they are dropped, if they haven't performed. And I think it allows Joe to have very frank discussions with people and it makes them aware early on that if you don't perform, then... Um, yes, Joe has a loyalty to players, and you can see that through the selection. I think there's been big loyalty shown to to, to Ross and Best, um, even to Toner, and uh, certainly to Payne. And that loyalty is 
is important and players like loyalty but you can't have blind loyalty and Eddie will be um, you know be able to tell you more about that it's you you have to back your players and give them an opportunity but if they don't perform you just can't pick them because they had a good game for you a couple of weeks ago and that's not enough I think you know Payne hasn't uh, gone fantastically well uh, this season for Ulster I think there has been a bit of you know injury there's also been mixing and matching in position I, listen he's a quality player and I, I think he probably probably deserves his position with Henshaw given you know the way he played in the autumn and he's also he is a he's a class act as well so I don't think they're going to lose anything from playing that combination at, at 12 and 13 but I certainly would like to, to get a 13 playing for Ireland that's playing for the province every week and is playing for Ireland that position every week. Eddie, just on what Shane said earlier on about how important this tournament is, there's no doubt it is and I know the uh, idea that we could experiment in it coming up to the World Cup would be a bit of a stretch but is it fair to say that actually for the other countries, uh, the other major powers anyway, this time around actually the Six Nations is is not really the priority at all. Certainly for England, they're hosting the World Cup. Everything's going to be geared around peaking at that time. Warren Gatlin said in November that he doesn't really... Well, he stopped just short of saying that he doesn't care about results in the Six Nations. He said it's all about treating the World Cup as the Olympic Games. And we know France could conceivably get a wooden spoon in the Six Nations and get to a World Cup final. No, I wouldn't agree with that at all, at all. And, and I say that on the basis of following. I think... First of all, if you can come over the Six Nations in good fettle, you don't maybe have to win it, but you've had you know, three or four big performances and you've really played well and the squad are on their toes and everyone's happy. The next time you're going to circle up in, you know, when, when the chips are on the table is the World Cup. And, and the, forget about the warm-up games before the World Cup. They're a nuisance for most players, unless you're trying to get into the squad. If you know you have a good shot to get into the squad, everyone's afraid they're like getting injured. And Shane had his scares on that too back in 07. Remember Shane, you know, up in Scotland. Yeah. Like it's, it's a nightmare time for players. So the next time Ireland will, will, will kind of saddle up is, that, is, is for the World Cup. So you need to have a good Six Nations to get everybody in a good headspace. If you have a bad Six Nations, like the, the, the hangover from that will, will, will come back again when you're leading into the World Cup and you don't want that. So... I don't mind what, what Warren Gatlin would say, but I think Warren Gatlin would certainly want the big Six Nations because they, they've, they've had their problem as well with consistency in Wales. They've always been good Six Nations. They've always struggled in the autumn. So, you know, he'll, he might say that, but I think he'll want it. I think the guy under the most pressure of all the, 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 the uh, coaches is Stuart Lancaster. He's under huge pressure because he's kind of following the same template or he's been told to follow the same template that uh, uh, that was followed in 2003 when Clive Woodward won the World Cup, having won a Grand Slam. So, like, if England have a poor world, a, a poor Six Nations, there'll be unbearable pressure on them going into the World Cup. So, Lancaster needs to steady the ship now more than anything. And they've had a they had a fluffy autumn. There was not much out of the autumn for them, and they've now had injuries. So he's under huge pressure. The one guy who's almost already said that, you know, he's kind of making excuses, and I, I have to say I, I don't blame him. Is San Andre. He has said, and I, a number of times here, I've seen him in, in, the, in the media, uh, and he said, look, um, the Six Nations is going to be very difficult for us. We've got of injuries. Guys are tired. Uh, the top 14 is taking priority. Uh, but wait till I get my hands on these guys for two months in the summer before the World Cup, and then we'll see real, real sparks. No, that's what he's saying at the moment. So he's probably the only coach, I think, that, that can have a bad Six Nations, and nobody would pass too much from Arsenal. Certainly here, I don't believe it's a big issue for them. But I think Wales... 
Scotland, definitely England, will want to come off a high going into the World Cup. And let's be face it, we don't want a bad Six Nations either. We're not going to we're not going to be happy, you know, uh, at the end of March if we've had a bad Six Nations. So I don't buy into this thing that the Six Nations is for like you know, oh, let's get through it and get ready for the World Cup. I think it's too important for that. It just doesn't work that way. Well, Shane, I've dug out the uh, I've dug out the quote from Gatton that I alluded to there. He says, "This was before the November internationals. Our whole planning and preparation is about the World Cup. We are selling the World Cup to the players as the Olympics. I'm not saying the autumn and the Six Nations games are not important, but our whole focus is making sure we get out of our pool." That doesn't sound like a guy to me who's going to be too worried about how results go in the next couple of months. Well, you know, I think that's handy enough uh, for Gatlin to say that as well. It sort of gives himself a bit of breathing room and his players a bit of breathing room. I, you know, it annoys me a little bit because I don't think he should be devaluing the Six Nations. The chances are Wales won't win the, the, uh, the World Cup. If they do get out of their group, you know, what, is there a huge difference between Wales not getting out of their group and actually not winning the World Cup? And um, then, on the other hand, the opportunity to win a, a, win a, a Six Nations or a Grand Slam. I know, you know, what I'd rather do. Um, and so, for him to devalue it, I think it's, you know, it's useful for him. I don't know how good it is for the competition, and I don't know how honest it is either. Also, to compare the Autumn Internationals to the Six Nations, there is no comparison. The Autumn Internationals um, has, you know, has a competitive element, but there was no prize given out for the best um, Autumn International team. Um, there's no uh, silverware for them and players, yes they want to win the games but what you want to do is be able to lift a, um, a trophy at the end or, or you know, write your name down in history as a Grand Slam champion you know, that's the, the, other, that's the other element uh, of this it's very, very difficult to, to win a, a World Cup, yeah it's difficult to, to win a Grand Slam or Six Nations but you have an opportunity every year, I don't know how much sense it is to put all your eggs in the World Cup basket and, and then you know, the likelihood is that you won't uh, become champions. And, uh, you know, th- then what you do, you wait another four years and you build up over that. And, and in the meantime, those games aren't as important. I think you, you, have a, you owe to, as a player to yourself, you owe to the, the fans and to the organisation to actually really commit to the Six Nations because it's the competition that the teams are in it are much, much more likely to win. And, and the, it's what people care about also. Shane, England could be a bit of fun to watch, actually, over the next few months. Lancaster was saying today that this is the biggest year in the history of English rugby. This is by them winning the World Cup in the past, obviously. And Sir Clive is getting quoted every day in the English papers. Like, the pressure coming down on them will be fun for the other nations, I think. Oh, it's going to be enormous. It really is. And I can even feel it now. I'm based in London. I can feel it ramping up. There's a lot of questions about the World Cup. There's a huge amount of um, desire for tickets. And there's, you know, people asking you questions about the English rugby team that would, you know, never have asked. They're more alert. They're, they're certainly the media um, have are, are hyping it up as as Eddie said for for a basis to win a tournament that is seen as a prerequisite to re- winning the World Cup. Now I think he's in a difficult difficult uh, position that he's um, Lancaster has shipped a huge amount of injuries. Um, I don't think he's hundred percent happy with his captain or the the, the back row makeup. Um, and he's got a, a player who's possibly one of the best in Europe, if not the world, um, the other side of the English Channel and, and unlikely to play a part in this tournament. Um, so he's got a huge amount of pressure um, coming down on him and he can only deflect so much. And it starts on Friday night against Wales. Um, and England get off to a bad start, makes things very difficult. I think he may... Um, you know he, he's going to try and bully teams, and, and you know he may be able to to go far enough with that. Whether it'll be enough to win the tournament, I don't know. He's a, yeah, apparently he's a lang- yes, Eddie. Yeah. 
I think he's a lot of problems, actually. I agree with Shane. He's a lot of problems at the moment. Not all his own making. The injury thing, there's not much you can do about it. But what he has singularly failed to do in the last few years is he's failed to work out what his midfield is. And he's failed to deliver a balanced game. I mean, we know what England do, and they're very good at it. But, but you know you know what you have to do to stop them. Knowing how to stop them and actually stopping them are two different kettles of fish because they, they are very good at what they do. But they, they, they've been struggling to deliver a backline uh, for a long, long time. And Lancaster was one of his first things that he said, and he's yet to do it. And that whole midfield conundrum is still up in the air. He's still not sure who his 10 is, I think. Um, he's a lot of stuff on his plate at the moment. And this is all, the whole thing overarching all his problems are the, the Six Nations, they need a big Six Nations to set down a marker for the World Cup. And then he's got to go and win the World Cup. It's just, not, it's just that simple. And uh, so he's the one guy who's under immense, immense pressure at the moment. I don't think the way it seems to be shaping, shaping up and the amount of time that he's left, I don't think he's time to develop balance in the team. And I don't, think, I don't necessarily think he's the players to develop balance in the team, especially in the back line. So what I think he's going to go, when he gets all his players back, what he does have is he has some monsters that he can put into that back line. He's got size, he's got bulk. And I think, aside from 10, I think that's what he's going to do. He's going to stack a massive back line, again with a monster pack, and he's going, to, he's going to say, you know what, we're going to play low-mistake rugby and we're going to try and bully teams. And that may be enough to do very well in the World Cup. Well, that's the big game of the weekend. Is it, it, it might win you Six Nations, but I don't know if it'll win you World Cup, Shane, to be honest. Yeah, yeah no, I think you know? it, definitely win you, uh, it can definitely win you uh, Six Nations. Um, it, you, know, it, it, you know, on any given day, it could, whether it'll be enough to win you know, a, 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 get out into the quarterfinals, do a semi-final and then win a final. I, I, I'd probably agree with you. All right, lads. That's the problem. That's the problem. Just before I, uh, I wrap things up, I've got to get an overall prediction from you and that is, uh, well, a tournament prediction, who's going to win it and how will Ireland do? That could be the same answer, actually, if, uh, if you're going by what a lot of people are going with in, their, in the predictions. Eddie? Um, I think, as always, it comes down to two home games in the odd year. We beat England and uh, we beat France. Uh, I think we can win, win the tournament, uh, if not the Grand Slam. Um, so, on that basis, I'd back Ireland. But, you know, I still think it's probably the most open tournament in a long time. But if you ask me to, to put my cards on the table, that's what I go with. Sounds good, Shane. Yeah, well, I always nearly row in behind Ireland every year. <laughs> For some reason, I get the feeling that it's uh, going to be our year. But I think, as Eddie said, two home games against the two most difficult teams uh, traditionally. Um, you, you think, you know, the way Ireland play, there's, there's every opportunity for us to win actually both those games. I think the Italy game this weekend is, is, a, is a gimme. So all of a sudden you've got, you know, you, you could have three, three results with um, two to go. And um, I think they'd probably get at least one, one result out of the other two. So, yeah, I don't necessarily think there'd be a grand slam. Uh, but I think uh, Ireland might win, uh, win a championship. OK, Shane, Eddie, enjoy the weekend. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. I don't think there's too much doubt, Simon, that the England Wales, the Wales England game is the 
the big one, the hardest one to yeah. call over the weekend. Although, yeah, people are tipping up Scotland a little bit this year to maybe cause a surprise against France. But this is huge, and it's always I always love watching matches in the Millennium Stadium. I don't know if players always love playing there. The English, uh, English players struggled to hear each other a couple of years ago, couldn't really communicate properly. So Stuart Lancaster has taken a leaf right out of the Deccan Kidney playbook. Kidney used to love doing this ahead of yeah. big games in Europe. And he has been pumping very annoying Welsh arias. Is that the right name? Yeah. Uh, it, and hymns. And hymns, hymns and arias. I mean, you can't have one without the other. They've it's been pumping both. They go together like mince and onions <laughs> on. into the training sessions at peak volumes. That the players are used to this by the weekend. Yeah, I, th- I mean, this was one. Speaking of rugby cliches earlier, when Declan Kidney did this ahead of a Saracens game, who famously used to have a little remote control car that would bring the sand out or the kicking tee out for yeah. the penalty kicker. And this was seen as genius, and one of the reasons why the whole Munster era kicked off the way it did. Um, so whenever I see these, I just felt it got given way too much credit. I just think those players were brilliant and they were well coached and all the other things were, were great about Munster. Um, so whenever I see something like this or, you know, to do with the roof being open or closed and pundits having to go at each other and the coaches having to go at each other and uh, players preparing with noise in their ears, I just it just feels like fluff, like nonsense. I know. Yeah, well, I mean, players- it's the same to the sporting media industry, Simon. In the in the in the moments, in the many many moments where there isn't a game actually taking place in front of our eyes, there's going to be a, something. There's going to be a splinter podcast, just rugby with Simon Hick. <laughs> Where you're literally not allowed to talk about anything except uh, let's, counter let's not give it any significance. The if counter were, if England, if, England, <laughs> if England win the game, let's not give it any Simon, credit. everybody else is tipping Ireland. Shane Horgan, Eddie O'Sullivan, Stephen Jones, as you mentioned at the Sunday Times mm. on Monday. Lol. Uh, lol. Big Lol says it would be a... He actually said the minimum requirement is a championship. <laughs> I would have said that the, well, the maximum requirement is a Grand Slam, but I think you're, you're doing well if you win a championship. What do you think? Are you going to... Heap I more think, pressure I think we're going to lose to either Wales or Scotland. I don't know why. You Scotland. Might just got there. Yeah, I really do feel like... But they've always got one really big performance in them. They pushed New Zealand to within six or seven points in November. Uh, Vern Cotter has an amazing CV. And if they play like Glasgow, which they kind of intend to do, and they've picked a lot of those players, um, then they're going to be dangerous for the first time in decades. Mm. And at home, I, ju- I just think Ireland... Yeah, might so just, might lose might one just of those. be going really well and think, oh God, Wales coming up at the end here. Losing to Scotland when we're going for a Grand Slam would be just that would be really sickening. Yeah, like I mean, the foot and mouth here. Yeah, that would be really. Now, in fairness, slightly different to the foot and mouth in that at least you're, we didn't know that we were on route for a Grand Slam until you know until after we'd beaten England, which was after losing to Scotland. But I mean, having won the four games and then go to Scotland, let's just hope that Scotland have their one big game. They have four chances to have their one big game before. So the yeah, Scots yeah, are going to pip us to a Grand Slam, are going to stop us from winning a Grand Slam. Are we still I think Scotland or Wales are going to beat us, and we're not going to hammer Italy, and that's your way of winning a championship. Okay. Somebody else will. So that's somebody I think else we're going to come second. England? Wales? I think England have happened upon a really good sure. backline. Jonathan Joseph is really good. All right, England to, to win, says Simon. I think you're about the only. I, I really haven't heard many people. Stuart Barnes, I think, might have said. Might have said England, but not too many people. Anyway, we've got to move on. Let's talk Super Bowl. It's US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Sure, 
Ryan Murphy, unimaginable drama on Sunday night. All of America is talking and everybody is asking the same question. How did Doug and Lisa's Super Bowl party go? <laughs> not, not did Marsh, why didn't Marshawn Lynch get the ball? It's how did Doug and Lisa's party go? That's incredible. Well, first and foremost, I think you guys, that intro, which is so iconic by now, so well done by you guys, you're going to have to make room for whichever call you want from that Super Bowl Final play because whether it's Seattle radio, New England radio, or uh, or the American uh, national broadcast with uh, Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, you guys need to insert that into the into the mosaic of American sound because that goes down in the all time annals. And Doug and Lisa's party was awesome. You guys totally missed out on a throwdown. Buckets full of beer, pots full of chili, and not only that, the surprisingly uh, robust sound system. I didn't know they were going to have these. Uh, you know, I got I got to revisit my TV speaker situation because uh, I'm one of these guys. I'm technically lame and horrible, and I I don't have my speakers set up to these. So we had Katy Perry just the bass just rattling our uh, when the sharks were dancing behind Katy Perry. Uh, our innards were rattling with their incredible sound system. Beautiful home, beautiful hosts, and you know, interestingly enough, we made it to the end of the third quarter, and little Rory Murphy got a little fussy, so it was time to go home. And Lisa Roberts, our generous host, clad in her Patriots gear, her Massachusetts uh, uh, DNA flying, she's like, because it was 24-14 Seahawks. And I said to her, Lisa, I'm so sorry. I think it's over. She said, what do you mean? All we need is two touchdowns. (laughs) And I said, I don't think it's going to happen. And she said, well, guess what? You leaving is going to make it happen. So I said, well, if that's it, we're going to scurry out. We scurried out, drove home. They frickin' won the Super Bowl, and Lisa Roberts sent me a text that said simply, thanks for leaving, with multiple exclamation points, and then one of those emoticons that I don't even know how to use, where the one eye was winking, and the other eye, and then the tongue was sticking out. It was like a a little tongue stick-out emoticon, kind of like thumbing her nose at me with a big laugh. So she had the last laugh. She was delighted. I still got the chili and the beer and the halftime show, and her Patriots won. So I'd call that a win-win-win. Did they get banged for their chicken wing, though, Brian? I hope you provided a running commentary of some description. Uh, You know what's funny? Uh, A little too. You know what your partners of guilty? A little, little too much self-importance here, buddy. Not (laughs) one person sought my counsel the whole time. (laughs) Not one. And I'm starting to. Guys, I'm starting to get a complex. Yeah. I'm like, A, nobody listens to our show. B, <laughs> if they do listen, they don't want to frickin' hear it from me. Or C, they do listen and they have no value of my opinion whatsoever. Mm. Because I was like, I was almost like standing around going, you know, offering a, holding a cardboard sign, we'll offer opinions for, for food, you know? <laughs> we'll, we'll provide analysis for food. I was trying to like kind of gently toss out like obscure knowledge that I had, you know, of, uh, <laughs> You know, a play would happen. I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, that guy, they just picked him up as a free agent. Uh, you know, he was kind of an underrated signing. Or, or another play would happen. And, I'd say, you know, Pete Carroll's trying to become the first guy ever to win uh, two national championships in college and two Super Bowls, you know. And it was uh, mostly met with crickets. Uh, people had their own thing. You know what you find out? People have their own things going on. People mm-hmm. have their own things going on. I was usurped by a neighbor, the very uh, wonderful Tom, uh, one of the great guys around the neighborhood, who revealed that Katy Perry's manager had just bought the house next to him in Mill Valley, California, and he became the star of the show because he now had the gossip on Katy Perry, and Russell Wilson apparently has been trying to date Katy Perry, and he had all the gossip. 
So I wound up plumbing him for information. So uh, I got uh, I got usurped, boys. Well, Brian, we still value your opinion here, and I'd like to know what you make. What, we talked a little bit. We, we talked. We are going to be joined on the line by Tom, though, in a few yeah, minutes a few to few talk to Katy Perry. Just, but just so he's you know an Irishman that. too. Tom Crowley. Tom Crowley okay, is his name. Good we man. Were, we were talking to Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe on Monday a little bit Ooh. about the uh, yeah the, the sort of reaction in New England, but also the the final play or well not the oh. final play, but the decision to pass and not run. The uh, being yeah. it was being called the worst call ever at the time. Now since then. Well, I've certainly noticed some of the articles I've read. There seems to be a bit of pushback or something. There seems yeah. to be a counterpoint offered over the last few days. Maybe you can explain what that is. And is, is, is it genuinely being considered now that maybe it wasn't such a bad call? Or is it just the kind of thing that people have to look smart by going against the flow? I think it's the latter, Owen. I do. I think what happened is what you have now in America, you know, in any, in this instant world of social media and social reaction, you have all your analysis. And then, of course, you wait about an hour and then there's the backlash to the analysis. So what you're seeing now is sort of the backlash to the backlash. You know, there was backlash to the call, and then now you're seeing the backlash to the backlash from the smart. Listen, all you need to know is that the New York Times commissioned a University of Michigan economics professor to write a piece uh, explaining something called game theory in which uh, the randomness of, of sporting activities is such that the call to pass, the decision to pass, was in keeping with game theory in that the Patriots were expecting a run, therefore going to a pass was the economically and statistically data-driven correct move. Uh, and, and, and I was like reading this thing going, so basically setting everything aside here, I have a University of Michigan economics professor in the New York Times explaining game theory to me. Meanwhile, I got Marshawn Lynch a half a yard from the goal line, and he's not touching the ball, right? So, I mean, who are you going to believe? The frickin' Michigan economics professor in his New York Times chin-rubbing piece, or Marshawn Lynch a half a yard from the goal line? So, uh, you know, yeah, you're getting all kinds of reaction all over the board. I would say, of course, when it all went down, you guys saw it. You're you guys are on Twitter, and you guys follow U.S. sports personalities, and even, I don't know, European analysts who are watching or whatever who all said, this is the craziest thing ever. How do you have this guy, and you have a timeout in hand that you can run the ball to this guy who just took it from the five to the half-yard line? They, he almost got in. You know, if you go back and watch that play, he's almost in. And if you give it to him right there, you have another chance to score the touchdown. This guy is the best. I mean, we talked about him in the week running up to it. Remember, we wound up declaring yeah. him the best back in the game and everything about him. And you would just think that everything would point to Marshawn Lynch getting that touchdown, whether he had to jump over the pile or whether he had to run through a guy or whether he had to use his quickness and get around the edge, which he could have done too. Uh, all of those things. Because when you – you know, there's an old phrase, an old football phrase, Woody Hayes, the old – Ohio State coach who used to be a, a real conservative guy from the Midwest and ground and pound football, three yards in a cloud of death. He used to say, I never want to pass the ball because when you pass the ball, only three things can happen and two of them are bad. And that's kind of the oldest football saw in the book, right? Incompletion or interception, right? So that, that kind of it, – it's funny. You, you can, like, talk analysis and data and stats and everything, but you kind of fall back on Woody Hayes. And you think when you pass the ball, three things can happen, and two of them are bad. And then you can have, you know, all the arguments against it. The guy was open. It was a, it was a, the play was there. It took one of the greatest plays in the history of the Super Bowl, if not the single greatest play in the history of the Super Bowl, by Malcolm Butler, the undrafted rookie free agent from a Division II school called West Alabama that nobody – 
has ever heard of. Nobody. You cannot make this stuff up. It took that play to prevent it from being a touchdown. So you can – I hear all the arguments. And, and here, the other argument is this. If he passes the ball here and it's an incomplete pass, which maybe they were hoping was the worst-case scenario, then you have now third down and you still have your timeout. So I understand on paper that logic. If you throw here and you score a touchdown, we win the Super Bowl. If you throw here and it's incomplete, we have third down, the ball on the half-yard line, and we can run it to Marshawn Lynch because we still have a timeout. I understand all that. I do. And at the same time, you had the greatest running back in football who's absolutely possessed and seems to be the most ballsy guy on the field, except for Tom Brady, Julian Edelman, and all the guys who scored two touchdowns on the Seahawks in the fourth quarter. And he's going to score a touchdown for you. So, incredible drama. I think, I was just talking on the show today, that 20, 30, 40 years from now, this will still be an incredible talking point, a la... You know, we talked Bill Buckner and the, and the onside kick last week. This supersedes that because this was a direct – the onside kick that Green Bay blew in the NFC Championship was amazing for a number of reasons. The guy wasn't supposed to touch the ball. You know, it, it led to this great comeback. But it also wasn't the climactic play. Seattle still had to take the ball 50 yards after that, and they did. But this was the climactic play. This was it. This was at the goal line. This was the, the climax of this incredible matchup between these two, you know, sort of legendary, currently legendary franchises, this all-time great defense versus Tom Brady. Brady had etched his name into the stone with the two touchdown drives, and it was all going to go away. And think about the legacies and reputations that turned on that one instant. Because if that's a touchdown, Tom Brady loses three straight Super Bowls, and deflate gate is the big ghost that hangs over him. The Seattle Seahawks have two straight. They're the first team to repeat since the 0304 Patriots. Russell Wilson becomes the first quarterback ever to win two Super Bowls in his first three years. Pete Carroll becomes the first coach ever to win two Super Bowls and two national championships. And instead, Bill Belichick ties Chuck Knoll for four. Tom, Tom Brady ties his all-time idol Joe Montana and Terry Bradshaw for four. And it all hinges on the one play. Not to mention the catch before that by Jermaine Curse that set it up where he kicks it around on his knee and his foot and all that went down. Just spectacular drama that will live forever, really. Yeah, I know you like this little story, Brian. Fionn Davenport, a friend of ours who presents a travel podcast here in the Irish Times, was travelling back from San Diego and he was, uh, he was in the airport. He watched the first half, I think, in his hotel then made a beeline for the airport and figured, well, I might get a bit of the early part of the fourth quarter, but we'll probably have to get on the flight. He, he figured time-wise he'd miss the end of the game. Gets to the airport, goes to the bar. Here's an announcement for the whatever BA flight to, to London or whatever it was, saying, don't worry, we're not going to be delayed in departure, but we won't be leaving until the end of this football game. Oh <laughs> so they watch the end of wow. it. with All the security relaxing for once, everybody just watching this amazing moment in, uh, in, a San, in whatever the international airport is there in San Diego. But I do want to tell you about another, I want to ask you, I should say, about another theory with regards to why the play unfolded as it did uh, in the minds of the, the Seattle Seahawks and Pete Carroll. And this is a conspiracy theory, which has been put forward by a few people. But Dave Zirin is the most prominent one, a columnist with The Nation magazine. And he says, now he's rolled back a small bit on this, but the, the, initially what he said was that he had heard grumblings from Seahawks players or from within the locker room, and certainly was being mentioned by reporters, that the Seahawks, in an ideal world, would want the winning touchdown created or scored by their golden boy, media-savvy, God-fearing quarterback in Russell Wilson, as opposed to their, their frankly 
uh, difficult to to like, certainly for corporate mainstream white America. Di- difficult uh, monosyllabic, monosyllabic, running back Marshawn Lynch, and that, that yeah, might have played right. some sort of role. That's nonsense, isn't it? I've heard that too, and it just seems to be this flat out, re- totally and completely one of the silliest things I've heard. And forever. I mean, I, I, I come from a place where I'm not a big conspiracy person to begin with anyway. It's like, you know, there's just too much randomness in life, and people have to work too hard to pull off conspiracies. I do not believe that the, the world is run by seven Zionists in Switzerland or whatever these lunatics believe, these white supremacists believe, and, or uh, other great conspiracy theories, 9-11 truthers and all these things that we hear. Those are dramatic conspiracy theories that take a lot. That, that, there was a play... They gave the ball to Marshawn Lynch on the five-yard line to try to score a touchdown. He was a half a yard from scoring the touchdown. If, if he pulled that ball across the goal line, would that, would that have been some grave mistake? I, I almost feel silly even wasting oxygen on the whole thing. No, it makes no sense right. whatsoever. They're also trying to sign Marshawn Lynch to a $10 million deal right there. I think they just thought that they could throw the ball to Ricardo Laquette on a slant and get a touchdown because they thought the Patriots were looking run and the Patriots had their goal line defense in. It, in some ways, Bill Belichick this morning or yesterday on Boston, I think it was Tuesday, said, you know, and of course he's in some ways you have to take this comment with a grain of salt because he's trying to be classy about it. But he said second-guessing the call is crazy. He took the backlash position, which is it made sense, you know, that they were trying to score a touchdown by catching us off guard. So that, that makes more sense. If we're going to talk about stupid calls and why they did it, them trying to catch the Patriots sleeping on a pass rather than them trying to avoid Marshawn Lynch, makes about 10 million times more sense than the conspiracy theory. So, I mean, go ahead. Knock yourself out, conspiracy theorists. Uh, you know, the people, there's sometimes when you get guys with conspiracy theories, there's nothing you can say. Because you can't disprove it unless you have some, they have some sort of smoking gun audio uh, where they actually have, you know, where we go, um, uh, the grassy knoll, JFK, these other great conspiracy theories in the world, right? So, I ain't buying it. I'm not buying it for a second, and to be honest, if you this circles back to the theory that, or it circles back to the uh, the premise that they had the touchdown if it wasn't for really, and and this has also been brought up a lot that all of this discussion, whether it's conspiracy theory against Marshawn Lynch or the worst call ever, all of it tends to undermine what is honestly one of the greatest individual plays. I've ever seen as far as pressure decisions, split-second decisions, and athleticism by this kid, Malcolm Butler, because you've got to go back and look at the film. Two critical things happen there. It's what they call stack or bunch receivers there, Jermaine Curse and Ricardo Laquette. And the deal is Jermaine Curse, the receiver in front of him, is supposed to run into the end zone and push his DB, Brandon Browner, into the path of Malcolm Butler, who would then be unable to defend Ricardo Laquette. And the key to the whole play, the smarter football people pointed out on Monday, was that Brandon Browner, former Seahawk, stones Jermaine Curse right on the line and doesn't he outstrength he, he's stronger than Curse and doesn't allow him to move his body, thus allowing Malcolm Butler an unfettered path to Laquette. Because if Brandon Browner takes two paces back, Brent, uh, it's called trash. Uh, Butler would have to run around that trash. Laquette catches the touchdown. 
He's in. So Browner with the block, stoning curse, allowing Butler to make a, a, a beeline. He has to read the play. And then on top of that, guys, on top of all that, Russell Wilson throws a fastball, man. Russell Wilson throws a Kaepernick fastball there. And the fact that Butler made the catch – Nine times out of ten, that, he can make the play, which is great, and the ball just gets knocked to the ground. And now Seattle still has the ball on the half-yard line. So much for your conspiracy theory, because then they give it to Lynch. And, and instead, he, he makes the read and makes the catch. So I think by doing all this stuff with conspiracies and all that, we really are doing a disservice to, uh, to Malcolm Butler, who deserves to be lauded as one of the great heroes in Super Bowl history. Brian Murphy, absolutely brilliant stuff. Amazing Super Bowl. Thanks a million. All right, guys. All the best. Oh, I have to say, I uh, you might have seen me physically shudder a little bit, Murph, when I heard the the words game theory there. Mm, I, mm. Having studied economics, in, uh, of course, you are an economist. I am an economist. Yeah, yeah we all uh, know. Funny that. enough, game theory is one of the uh, one of the uh, easier to stomach and more enjoyable parts of mm. my economics degree. Uh, I must say, wasn't quite so packed with bullshit as many of the other uh, areas <laughs> it wasn't, of economics. No, Murph, no, there was a good level of it now. The but. great thing about economics, I was told by many economics professors, is yeah. so much of it is open to interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, that's one way of saying <laughs> full of bullshit. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. I can't, I'm still shocked Doug and Lisa had no respect for Brian's professional opinion. Yeah. A lot of people would pay good money to hear Brian's opinion. They, he just good had money. To, oh, unbelievable. That's why I had to give you 15 quid before I entered your house, son. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, what could I say? Yeah. You know, I'd, say, I'd be giving this stuff for free at, uh, otherwise, so 15 quid, please. Doug and Lisa did the job, sounds like, and uh, Brian, Brian could be back next year. Well, yeah, let's not go nuts here. Just before we wrap things up on this podcast, we have got a football podcast coming out later today. No Ken Early. Uh, he's, not, he's away this week, so I'm going to set that out right there. But we do have Brian Kerr, Dion Fanning, and Daniel Taylor is going to talk to us about Adrian Doherty, a uh, man from Northern Ireland from Tyrone, who went over to Man United around the time that uh, he was in the same youth team as, as Giggs, just ahead of the, around about the class of 92. He was, uh, 1990 was when he was really doing his, doing his business. Apparently unbelievable winger, really highly rated. Uh, it's easy to say now, many years later, but uh, Daniel Taylor found a lot of people, a lot of people with, with who, whose opinion he would hold in high stead were saying this guy was at least as good as Ryan Giggs, was in some ways the most highly touted prospect, had a really bad injury, didn't seem to have a great life afterwards, uh, certainly after his career, which pretty much ended with the injury, which put pay to any hopes of, of making it at Man United. And uh, tragically, he died around 2000. So we'll... Um, uh, just talk to Daniel Taylor about that a little bit. He wrote about it when the Class of 92 documentary was coming out towards the end of last year, just maybe not so much a counterpoint, but uh, a different angle uh, to that to that time and a person who I'd absolutely never heard of. So we'll, uh, we'll look forward to that conversation. But right now, Murph, before we wrap this one up, uh, I want to ask you about Rory McIlroy because uh, he was front and centre of all the papers yeah. and every news site in Ireland today. Uh, it's a funny one. You know, he's, he's in some ways you think I know this is very naive, and any lawyers listening to this be going, well, 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 please don't say that. But why they couldn't have just had this settlement a number of months ago and not uh, had it become, get quite so close to uh, what would have been a very acrimonious court case. Uh, he now has paid up the 20-whatever million dollars is the figure being quoted. They're not, he's not saying it. Horizon Sports aren't saying it. But at, at least it's over. I don't think it would have been good news for either party to have to go through a court case and have all their everything aired in public yeah certainly not and it, you know you got to take it to the precipice before you start okay you you go right to the brink and then you start you start dealing which I suppose is what's happened so yeah. there was whatever it was the 93 seconds of uh, of court business taken care of on Tuesday morning 
and uh, and eventually settled yesterday morning, Wednesday morning. So, I mean, it it really boils down to whether you actually think the sizes of deals you have to keep in mind. You know, the, okay, twenty five million dollars is a huge amount of money to anyone, to a country that you know, to to a country that's a massive amount of money. Um, and he's handed it over. And basically, the negotiations came down to, I suppose, how much Rory McIlroy was willing to pay to just ensure that this none of this kind of came to light. Now, there's no doubt about it. Rory McIlroy has made a massive mistake here. And I have some pe- have heard some people saying, oh, well, all of uh, Rory McIlroy's friends in the media are happy to just paint this as, OK, Rory can just get on with his life, without actually acknowledging the fact that Rory has made a massive mistake here. There's no doubt about it. Rory did make a massive mistake. He signed a contract and he reneged on that contract. And it's a win for Horizon. It's a win for Conor Ridge, the, the uh, general manager of, of Horizon. Um, but what you have to actually take into account is that this hasn't actually affected Rory McIlroy in any way at all. And it, it there's no there will be no repercussions on the back of this. He's going to hand, hand over $25 million. At, Rory does not strike me as a guy who's motivated by money at all. Um he won a tournament on Sunday and came into this on Monday morning. I mean, the, the, the idea that people are going easy on Rory McIlroy because uh, people in the media are going easy on Rory McIlroy because, oh, you know, you want to stay in the good favours of Rory McIlroy. Is that an, is that an idea that's been put out? I, I've, I, have, I have seen it from people involved in PR and public relations and that. And, you know, it's a question you should ask. You know, it, it, what does this tell us about the character of Rory McIlroy if you're a fan of Rory McIlroy? You know, I think it tells us that he reneged on a contract and he probably shouldn't have done it. I don't think that that reflects particularly badly on him. And I certainly think that from the point of view of his golf career... I mean, no, from the point of view of the golf, golf career, it makes no difference whatsoever. No difference whatsoever. But when you're deciding how much you like somebody, or the pop- considering the popularity of a specific sports person, yeah. clearly you take into account stuff that happens... Off the, the field, field and off yeah. the court as well as on the court. So I guess it depends how much weight you attach to what you call a mistake there. I don't even know if a mistake is the right term because it was a deliberate act of his to to leave Horizon, to go with uh, his own yeah. sort of family back. That's not the mistake. You know, the mistake, I suppose, was signing the signing contracts and... And and then deciding right mm. well I've signed it but that doesn't matter and the fact you that know, he the fact that he's admitted the, the fact that he's paid this money over is an admission it's not a legal admission of anything because it's an out of court settlement yeah. but it, it's an admission by Rory McIlroy that I'm not going to win this case or if I'm not going to win maybe I will win this case after a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of my massive numbers are put out in public people see everything I don't think anyone really wants in any walk of life every bit of their business to become public knowledge yeah. you know whether they're doing everything by the book and I'm not saying Rory in any way is and I'm sure he is but but it, it doesn't it's not something that people are generally comfortable with and particularly with the amount of dollars you're talking about when it comes to Rory McIlroy, I don't know how much public sympathy there would have been if it had actually yeah. gone through a big court case. The fact that he settled it out of court probably does nip a lot of it in the bud and you're just left to decide, well, how much of a black mark do I put against McIlroy because he left one management company uh, and moved to another, yeah. which he'd already done a few years back the as fact well. The matter I'm is, no one, sure yeah, no one cares about Chubby Chandler or Connor Ridge or Mark Steinberg. These, you know, and that's absolutely fine, you know, but no one, no one cares about those guys. You care about Roy McIlroy, you care about Tiger Woods or, you know, Lee Westwood or whoever. It's the players in their charge. If Roy McIlroy earns, earns $250 million from Nike mm. and he pays, he's either giving 10% to his agent or he's giving 
10% to a former management company uh, in an out-of-court settlement. At the end of the day, the figures are eye-watering. You know, there there is a, an amount of money past which it 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 starts pixelating in your brain. You know, you actually can't <laughs> you know you actually can't see that amount of money. I mean, if you earn two hundred fifty million dollars, is there any difference between earning two hundred twenty five million dollars? Would have been a great court case, though, wouldn't it? Well, you know what I mean? It would have been a fascinating court case. Yeah. Let's be fair; a lot of people. We're there waiting for this to happen. I mean, the, the Irish Times newspaper itself, or if there it is, Maddie Clerk on the mm. front page, Philip Reid at the case as well. I'm sure a lot of other publications, a lot of other sites, a lot of people ha- were, if this, if this had started to go, would have had, would have been reporting, would have been salivating over mm. some of the reports coming out of here because it would have been one of those uh, just amazing uh, news stories surrounding one of the most famous men in the country yeah. but it's not going to happen now yeah. news hounds yeah, back off news hounds it's, unfortunately it's just one of those situations where as Maliki was writing in the paper on Wednesday morning uh, people decided to act like adults and ruined it for the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that do check out the website secondcaptains.com and check out irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts have a listen to that football podcast a little bit later on today in the meantime thanks very much Kieran. thank you Owen. and thanks so much for listening take care That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.